Okay, so hello everybody and welcome to episode 11 of Thelma and Tom Get Left. And we're well, hopefully going to have a really good episode here for you today. We've got a great guest coming along shortly. And, um, and me and Thelma are going to have our customary chat at the beginning. So hello Thelma, lovely to see you again. Hope you're well. Uh- yeah, yeah, Tom, I'm fine. Good to see you too. Yeah, talking about our opening chat, I think it went on for about half an hour last week, didn't it? Yeah, we got a bit carried <laughs> away. Well, um, we did, we did. And, and are, you feeling, are, are you feeling a bit calmer this week, Tom? I, I know, I, I, I know I'm, I'm, I'm remarkably subdued, Thelma. I think it'll be okay. Um, we, we, I mean, we, should, we kind of aim for about 10, 10, 12 minutes. I think last week we went over the 20, but but it was just such a good... I, I, we, we, we had a good conversation, you know, and uh, a, couple of, we did. a couple of people have and said to me they enjoyed listening to it as well, which is nice. Yeah, I think I, I've had some really good feedback as well, um, e- even about John's trombone playing. I think um, I had uh, a couple of positives. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah well, that's, that's something. <laughs> 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 yeah, I'm struggling to believe that, but anyway... Um, <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, might, he might be lis- he might be listening to this one. We better be careful. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, it was a, such a great episode last week, and I mean, it was a long episode, but it was it was so good. And 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 when we came to do the edit, and I was thinking this is way too long, and I couldn't. I, I was really struggling to cut stuff out. Um, uh, but I don't think it matters, you know. It, it was good stuff, and uh, it was quiet. And one or two people said to me it wasn't very kind of gung ho. But but there was a, a sort of underlying wisdom coming through. I felt, and I from I, I, I loved think it so. actually. And the and, and and it's given me a lot to think about during the week. Yeah. Well, I think the affirming thing is that there were three of us, um, you know, sixties or and above who who still have that uh, fire <laughs> for socialism yeah. and for equality. And I think, I hope that came through um, in our last episode. Um, and a lot of wisdom. Yes, a lot of wisdom, especially from John. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I, I hope people enjoyed it. Yeah, I think, I think we, had some, we had some good feedback. We, I mean, I, I, it's one of the nicest parts of doing this podcast. Obviously, it's, it's really nice making the podcast, but it's, it's also really nice when we get a, a little comment you know, a bit of feedback, that was really good, or, yeah, da-da-da-da. Uh, I'll tell you one yeah. of the best bits of feedback I got this week is, and I, this is slightly a joke, um, <laughs> why don't you do Patreon? And um, so uh, there's someone queuing up to help us on our way. Uh, but uh, oh, okay. <laughs> anyway, um, we'll, we'll discuss that some other time. So a uh, lot's gone on in uh, politics, as usual, Thelma. Um, oh, and uh, I'm, I'm, I mean, it's all got a bit monopolised by the complete craziness of the, the Tory party. So, I mean, we can't really just pass it by. It's, it's a... An absolutely no. mad situation uh, that's all boiled down. I mean, it's been mad for for ages, and it's all boiled yeah. down to this: uh, the you know the curtains and the cost of the curtains and the cost of the wallpaper. And I, 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 I mean, I think I, I put a tweet on this last um, couple of days about feeling I've been sidetracked by soft furnishings. That's what we're <laughs> yeah. on because because and I do feel like that. I feel like. All of this is blown up about how much was spent on wallpaper and that appalling, <laughs> appalling sofa and all the rest of it. Um, but when you think about it, the, we've had all this corruption and cronyism that's been going on with Matt Hancock and, and 30 million on uh, COVID contracts. 
um, that just seems to have been passed by. Um, and we've got the green sill uh, with David Cameron going on. And suddenly the focus is on how much the wallpaper costs. And even though it's outrageous, why, why are we going down this route when all the other things... And, and, and Labour seems to be picking up on that as well, rather than calling out all these previous... Uh, all this corruption that's obviously been going on um, with, with private uh, contracts. So that that's the thing that's niggling me. Mm. Um, call, call me, you know, how, how it, <laughs> describe me as having a suspicious <laughs> mind, but I'm just thinking, why are we all talking about wallpaper? And the John Lewis, I mean, great for John Lewis that they're getting a good plug, but I I just think... What's really going on here, you know? Well, um, so how can you mm. tell? I mean, it's uh, I, I understand what you mean. I mean, the, the the if you had to put the pile of scandals, you know, in a, in a pile, the most important at the top, the cost of the wallpaper, it seems like a strange thing to get caught out on. And uh, and, and I saw a couple of tweets about that, but mm. the fact mm. is. I think I think possibly what it is is they know they've got the evidence on that one. They they yeah. they know that he can squirm and squirm. That they've got him, and uh, um, but yeah, it's why they want to get him right now. That information must have been there for ages, and it's almost like if you if you look at the right wing newspapers and right wing um, uh, TV. Uh, programs and commentators they all seem to be descending on him at the moment yeah. and it's almost like it's almost like a roman emperor you can guess who has given the thumbs down and this this is the end yeah. of, of johnson you almost feel a decision has been made that he's got to go yeah and you you wonder who's behind it and I think we'll probably have a conversation later about who who actually is in charge of who rules our, absolutely, our country. Absolutely, you know? yeah. um, but but I just think the way it's all happened all at once, when a lot of this information would have been there for some time, why have the journalists not come down on it before? Why now? And yeah, it's, it's, me, it's almost like someone's just flicked... Flick the, the fire the starting gun or something, isn't it? And okay, you Just, can go now. And I reckon yeah, a decision's been made. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it is yeah something we're going to discuss later for definite. Um, but yeah, I, I, yeah, I yeah. know exactly what you mean uh, because it, but it, but the thing I, the thing I would say as well, Tom, the the thing that does make me a bit well, it's a bit depressing, is it's like the behaviour of an individual that we're looking at, yes, the Prime Minister, but it's it's almost a condemnation of all politicians as well because every time sleaze, as it's called, happens or corruption, everybody um, seems to be kind of um, tainted by it. Um, and, it, you know, if you look at... I was just looking at a British Social Attitude Survey said the trust in the British government is at a record low, 15% only saying we trust the government. Um, and I, I, I just think we've also got uh, Tony Blair saying there's nothing wrong with lobbying. Mm. Um, and, the, and there were obviously issues um, when he was prime minister with the uh, cash for honours, etc. that mm. went on then. Mm. Um, so we... It, it it damages it damages um the credibility and integrity of 
of all politicians, really, when this happens, and public servants. And that saddens me, because there's some, as I often say, uh, frequently on our our podcast episodes, that there's a a lot of people with honour and integrity uh, in politics, despite what people say. And I think it's a real shame that everybody's tainted with this. Yeah. Um, And that's how the public see all politicians, when some behave in this way yeah absolutely i i know and and the 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 real big trump card that well i don't know if i can say that that the left have got or should have is that we don't get caught up in that stuff and uh, uh it's such a complicated situation though isn't it because that stuff gets manufactured and planted on people and we've seen it what, we've witnessed what's happened over the last few years and and no wonder people have lost trust it's there's the mm-hmm. people that the most powerful people in that place are are so um suspect i'm not i've got to be yeah. careful what i well, say well well no but i think the thing is the public don't know who to believe anymore i mean once people have lost trust in somebody um then then it's very hard to get that back yeah um um and once you've lost integrity you know that that's really hard to get back so as i say it can only take one person but if they're in the position of prime minister then it taints everybody around him and i just think um that really does um sadden me so yeah at the moment we just we just seem to see um our prime minister and those around him um and it, and it, and it just doesn't feel like we're being well led and led with integrity does it no it's it's awful and the, you know you don't have to be that that knowledgeable to see how how crooked the whole thing is with bungs for you know give money to the tory party get a contract and uh, it, it, but it's not just the Tories. It, it goes right through. Well, I, I can't say it goes right through the lot, but I, I've I've been watching for a few years now, and it's it's not it's a it's all a bit you know you're my mate, so you can have this. You're you're you know I'll give you this, and if you don't yeah. say this, I'll give you this, and I'll do that. And it's no you know you wouldn't really want to. I mind you, I've been in sort of clubs like you know sort of small mm-hmm. clubs. Where you're on the committee, and 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 I've sometimes I've come out of those committee meetings and I've kind of reeled out, just thinking, my God, this is as bad as anything I've ever seen. It's it's sewn up, and people make deals before they get into the meeting, and yeah. and anybody who says anything that that's contrary to that is quickly yeah. shut down or or made to yeah. feel completely you know unwanted. It's just a microcosm of what's going on there. Now, how you sort that all out and get... um, What I'd really like to do is talk to someone who's really knowledgeable about international political uh, systems and see if anywhere in this world there are countries that have got some better system going on mm. than what we've got yeah. here. I mean, this is archaic, yeah. what we've got here. This is, yeah. Yeah. This is far yeah. worse than a lot. Well, it's about accountability, isn't it? And it's about, I suppose, public oversight of what's happening in the private sector as well, isn't it? Yeah. That's that's the thing. Um, and, and it's have it, having the, the public 
having a say and having and having a voice in in and regulation of what's happening as well so there's so so much really that we could talk about on this oh. but um just at the moment it just does seem um well well pretty febrile and who knows what will play out over over the next few weeks absolutely i mean i'm expecting it to be anything from nothing to everything Really, I mean, yeah. you could see. Yeah. I, I, we've seen situations like this before, where it just trundles on and it gets brushed under the carpet, and on yeah. we go. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then we've seen situations where next to nothing trips someone up, and all change. Uh, so we'll yeah. we'll just have to see on that one, Thelma. But yeah, it's it's yeah. interesting, and I agree. We could talk for ages on it. It's, it's one of my favourite mm. subjects in a way. Is mm. is how do you govern? And I think I, what really doesn't help with with this government in particular, is that they're, they're almost anti-government. Um, yeah. So they have yeah. no interest, really, in working out mm. the best way to run a government. Yeah. Their, their idea yeah. is behave like a pack of wild animals. Um, mm. And sadly, a lot of people buy into that because obviously the strongest animals win. And um, yeah. anyway. Well, it's, it's, it's going back to this old boys' network type thing, isn't it? You know, you just, you just feel that... That is very much what is, um, what is going on um, at the moment with the um, government we've got, um, and you you would hope that um, that doesn't extend to to people in in the Labour Party or other political parties. You would hope. Well, um, <laughs> no uh, but, comment. But uh, yeah, well, um, but but that does seem to be what's happening, and I think the public can see it, and yeah. that's why I meant I mentioned that that social attitude survey. Um, yeah, that's to show interesting. How people, because because when trust has gone, and I use that word trust a lot, because it is really important. When trust has gone, then um, there's not much left, is there? No. And um, and I don't think there's much respect from a lot, a lot of the general public for how we're being governed at the moment. But we'll we'll see uh, what what happens uh, as I say over the next few weeks. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've been to. I, we're in danger of forgetting about our guest here and just talking for three quarters. Yeah. Now. But I, I, I've been to countries uh, in the world where the governments have broke, you know, broken down or or, or have been mm. so overwhelmed by the situation that the, they might as well not exist. And it, you, you really are living in a, um, you know, uh, an un, uh, what I don't know what they call it, a, a, a society without a government, basically. And it really, uh, you're, it's it's anarchy. And and you, you all the time. Uh, sometimes I thought, well, this seems to be working okay. We're getting by, and everybody knows that in order for this to work, they've all got to behave in a certain way. Uh, and and sometimes it's quite appealing. I can see that, um, but the, I don't know. Right now, I feel like government is so needed to control the the worst uh, excesses of. Of the of the private section, really. Um, I know it sounds yeah. a pretty old fashioned way of saying it, but that's what I've always yeah. that's always what I thought government yeah. was about. Yeah, definitely. <coughs> yeah, um, yeah. What what about the awful changing the subject? But you know something. What about the awful situation in India, Tom? Oh my God, it's terrifying, isn't it? And and uh, you know, yeah. I, it's one of those things. Mm. Uh, mm. I you can you can't really think about it because it's too vast and. Oh. Uh, and when I was saying, uh, just sorry, Tom. I just uh, when I was saying about I've been to countries where the government might as well not exist. That in the in the late sixties, seventies, in, in India, that's how it was. 
and you, you would be in parts of India, you would be beyond government. And, mm. and it was, sometimes it was terrifying just to be in that situation, in a normal situation. So what it must be like now with twice as many people is already crowded mm. back then. So I, I haven't been to India for 30 odd years now, but it's, it's a it's a fantastic place it's a beautiful place i love it to mm. bits but it's so crowded and to mm. to imagine that so crowded situation with this terrible virus happening it just uh, i can't i can't just, begin to think about it thelma well I, I, this across the world three million have now died of covid and there's been 5.8 million new cases announced this last week globally. It's the highest ever. So, you know, when we're talking about, oh, you know, we're going to come out of lockdown um, in the summer, you know, in June or whatever, it's not over until we've sorted it globally. Um, and it, it's it's really out of control, not just in India, but in, in many areas of the world still. Yeah. Um, and some of the scenes, I mean, I've never been to India, Tom, but um, some of the scenes um, I've been watching on the TV are just so heartbreaking yeah. when the health service is just, and public health is just overwhelmed completely. Yeah. Um, and you, you've got people dying in, you know, in their cars because they can't get into the hospital, or can't get oxygen. Um, it, it is just so heartbreaking. And I kind of think there, sh- there should be... I mean, I know the World Health Organisation are trying to do their best with this, but there, there, there should be an international response, I believe, to this to give support. And, um, you know, things like the patent on the vaccines. And That's the, disgusting. The vaccine, the vaccine should be free. I mean, what, what are we even thinking about uh, to think that there could be any profit made at this at this time um and and we should we should all be pulling together uh, across the world to to support everybody and the, Thelma, and it's cuz it's it's cuz they're brown i mean you might as well say it really it, 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 you know look at uh, we don't know if they said let the bodies pile high we don't know that mm. but i can imagine I mean, I, it's, in a way, if you're the ruling classes and you're wealthy and you've got all the power, getting rid of a few people that aren't of any profit to you is, it, you know, it's to your advantage. I can see the logic well, of that. I, it's disgusting and disgraceful, yeah, I, I know. But. It's just this, this idea of, of someone's life could be worth less than another person's life. It just, just does not sit uh, easily with me. I think it's outrageous and awful and... Uh, Really, you know, the call for vaccine justice, as it as it as it can be called, is so right, yeah. and it is it is not it is not right or just or fair to think that one section of the world population, the global population, is not as important as a, as another. It is and disgusting. We should, we should just be we should just be pulling together um, to help one another. Um, and in, in our own interest, because it's very clear, isn't it, that if if we don't eradicate um, this terrible virus, then and and of course the if it mutates again and the, the variants continue, um, then none of us are safe. So yeah. um, I, it's just yeah, it it it's just 
heartbreaking, I think. It is. It's, um, it's awful. And I think also because it's, you, you know, if, in the news about our country, oh, well, it's nearly done. There's none, hardly anybody's ill anymore. And, you know, we yeah. can go out and be normal. It's, yeah. it's easy yeah. to forget about that, isn't it, Thelma? I mean, to be yeah. honest. I, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, it is. I, I think it's quite interesting as well if you look at the areas where it's at its worst and you've you've got Modi, Bolsonaro and our own country with Johnson and the death rate we've had mm. just look at the style of leadership there and, yeah. and who we're talking about and it can't be a coincidence can it? Um, well you'd think not I, I tried no. to write a tweet along those lines about a few days ago and I failed miserably mm. because the the, the um, <laughs> I can't remember but the, the, the fourth country, fourth worst country is Mexico and uh, I thought, oh, I wonder what the government's like in Mexico. And uh, I, most of Mexico is ungovernable, ungovernable um, because it's controlled by gangs. And uh, oh, my God. I mean, yeah, uh, well, is... it's linked to poverty. <laughs> yeah. 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 Kind of uh, intergenerational uh, kind of housing. And uh, well, we, we know, don't we, yeah. what what. What, what the factors are but even so when you look at the the, the key players of who's who's leading and governing in those countries and, yeah uh, yeah as i say it can't be a coincidence no, but anyway no absolutely our, our hearts go out yeah, to absolutely those do. with I, relatives in india and, and, and it's one of those things this india. is the same sort of syndrome or same sort of example as the curtains in down street you know why are we picking up on the curtains in down street and sometimes you think, look what's happening in the world. Why are we discussing, mm. you know, comprehensive mm. education when all this is happening over in India? But that's how it is mm. in life, isn't it? You know, you mm. can't. You have mm. to deal with what's in front of you. And, and I've never really yeah. managed to come to terms with that. How, no. how no. something can be a problem to me that, you know, when so much is going on. But that's just yeah. how it is in life, isn't it? It's, it's an it's a enigma. <laughs> So yeah, anyway, is, there is, you are. Yeah. That was an unexpected uh, first part to our podcast. And thank you for <laughs> listening and stick with us. We've got our guest coming in a second, uh, Owen Jones, and we're really looking forward to chatting to him. And we've got some belting questions to ask him. So I hope he's on form. Uh, we'll see what happens. See you in a minute. believe it really I, well only because I've, I'm new to this game and uh, you know you don't expect after a few weeks to be sitting in a in a group with uh, Thelma and Owen there well you you're scra- I mean you've got Thelma you're scraping the barrel with me but I'm nonetheless <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> I'm honoured to be in the presence of two esteemed comrades even if I'm the budget option that's very good well, well, if I, you know, Ash Sarkar John McDonald started a high plunge <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, we were really struggling Not for a guest, Owen, and uh, well, you must have been. Me. <laughs> Let's just get Owen in for you. Know. Not at all. Throw him in; he'll Not be grateful. <laughs> <laughs> He's always got something to say. You can rely on that. Okay, mate. Um, so, uh, yeah, one of the best, uh, well, most, not best, wrong word, one of the most well-known journalists on the left of British politics and uh, been around years and years and years, and um, <laughs> everyone knows Owen. Um, 
And yeah, great to have you on. Uh, it's an thank honor. you. Thank it's an you honor. so much. And I, I believe you met Thelma last week. We did. Yeah. We had a lovely little chin rug on our oh yeah, on a on a park bench. <laughs> we did. I really enjoyed it actually. It when Tom says when Tom says that you've been around for years and years and years, to me you look about twelve at the <laughs> you moment. You know what? I I I mean it is true, I've kind of been stuck with the Macaulay Culkin in Home Alone look for a while. <laughs> but I feel eight, by the last five years in particular, I think we've we've all suffered the aging consequences of what we've all lived through. Uh, mm. So I think age is going to catch it. But I'm 36, you know, and it's funny because... Oh, my goodness. You've had Asaka just... on and she's obviously genuinely young. She's 29. And I'm like, I'm yeah. the old man of the left commentariat. Oh, you're just you're just a child compared to Tom and I. But <laughs> be like to, be like talking to your parents anyway today. But actually, just talking about what we've all been through, that leads nicely uh, to my... First question, which is a bit of a role reversal, me asking you questions, Owen. But uh, yeah, um, but it's um, about what we've all been through. But your age in particular, I've said quite a few times in recent interviews, I've done that. It's your age group and younger that I really feel for. Um, thinking back to, to when I was your age and younger, of the friendships, the going out, the socialising. I was, you know, when I was younger, I was kind of in Manchester and the placemate seven and the spinning wheel and all that and the music scene and um really for well it's well over a year now young people like yourself um have have really missed out so are you are you getting back into meeting friends in the limited way yeah i mean i feel a lot worse for people younger than myself because you know i am 36 and people in there you know you kind of think people went to university you know, you got that whole cohort who mm. the government messed up their A-levels um, or GCSEs, but then people who went to university and then you kind of expect that's, mm. you know, when you kind of live your best life, mm. you do mm. some things which are very embarrassing and embarrass yourself <laughs> for the rest of your life. But that's part of being young. And obviously a lot of, you know, I remember speaking, I interviewed these poor students from Manchester University and they were... The, the the university built this wall costing eleven thousand pounds paid for by their fees uh to to like hem them in uh you know and people just locked up um in uh in halls and not being out yeah i mean it's awful it's terrible things have to go uh i mean yeah i mean me personally though i have to say i mean you know i know there are some people who they kind of looked at the bright side of elements of lockdown, and I'm not, I've definitely not been one of them. Uh, I think the whole thing is just be mm. so miserable. I, I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm one of these people, I just depend on the company of others. Uh, my friends, yeah, my friends mm. are very important to me, and you know, not be you know, and it's not the same on Zoom. I know on Zoom now, but it's just not the same, and you know, being able to sit in a you know, in a pub with your mates and gossip and chat about stuff i mean you know it's all just go out and get raucously drunk yeah i mean these are these are the things that make life worth living and um yeah i mean obviously we've had to make these huge sacrifices to stop you know an even greater human catastrophe than the one we've already suffered but yeah it's it's you know we are social creatures aren't we we depend on we depend on human social interaction and I mean, it's even worse for people, I think, who live alone. You know, I think about that. You know, I know I've got friends who live alone. 
also people who are like start a, a relationship with someone and then it's like make a decision and then sort of had to move in other people whose relationships fell apart you know lockdown it's a big ask and you know just being stuck with both of you you know it's a it's a, it's a test and not not everyone's relationship passed it so i think yeah the impact we don't talk about those things a, a, a lot because obviously we think to ourselves it's self-indulgent because people have gone through so much misery but it's important it's you know it's um it's you know the loneliness and solitude of this has been very acute and i think as well if i'm gonna be honest, like I'll, just one example you know I, I think of people who are now in very very difficult circumstances um i'm thinking of people with drug addiction um mm. dr drug addiction and lockdown very bad combinations people with underlying mental health conditions but it's been it's been really grim and we need to watch these conversations without thinking we're being lockdown deniers or we're we're somehow not you know we're denigrating the fact that people have died in in large numbers mm. Mm. yeah I, I think i i've expressed um, my concerns about the coming out of lockdown as well and that judgment of um, there were scenes when people were first allowed to go outside and, and to mix in bigger groups a couple of weeks ago. And I think I said on that episode that I was pleased that people could, because of all the reasons you've mentioned, mental health problems, the fact we want to be we're gregarious, we want to be with people, all of that. But then I saw scenes in... Soho, I think it was, where there were all these long trestle tables with people packed together. And I just thought, oh, is it too soon? Is it too much? And what if there was another, another wave? You know, it's that fear of, it's almost like fear, wanting to go out, but fear of going out. And Yeah, and you're right. Yeah. And I think that's why we need rational conversations about it, because obviously... You know, I, I've supported lockdown and my belief is the government didn't lock down quick enough and then reopened without a functioning test and trace system because they handed it to their private sector cronies. He made a complete cock up of the whole thing with Serco and, and so on. Um, but I think in terms of what, I, I, what I've been annoyed about is, you know, we've got to remember that this is a government, government cata it's catastrophe. It was, it was created by government systemic failures. And because we've had over a generation of Thatcherism where people are encouraged to believe that there aren't such a thing, there's no such thing as systemic failings, there's, you know, so, poverty and unemployment wouldn't sort of as, as, uh, as, as um, social injustices needing collective redress. And then under Thatcherism, they were seen as individual failings. If you're poor, it's because you didn't work hard enough. If you're unemployed, you need to get on your bike. And, yeah. it, and it's been the same in Clever. COVID. It's this sense of, Oh, it's not the government who messed it up. It's these ne'er-do-wells down the road, um, particularly the way young people have been portrayed because younger people, as we just spoken about, have made, you know, they've, they've formed this. I think the way of looking at it is younger people have given up some of the best moments of their life and given up their freedoms um, overwhelmingly, uh, overwhelmingly done so and, 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 and accepted the extreme imposition on their and restrictions on their freedoms, and they formed a sordon, a sordon, um, a cordon, sorry, a cordon sanitaire around older people in this country, and that is a a, a brilliant act of human solidarity for which younger people should be um, praised. And I think my worry is you get sometimes photographers using 
lend the, you know, yet their cameras deceptively, they go to parks and they make it look like, oh, look, the parks are all rammed. If you actually go to the parks, if you look at it from afar, it looks like everyone's crammed together. And then you go there and you see everyone socially distanced. And it's the same. I've been to Soho again. I mean, when I went to Soho, you had those scenes and Cressida Dick, who is the commissioner, I mean, there's a separate issue about Cressida Dick, but nonetheless, she was there patrolling with her police officers. If people were really breaking the law because they're abiding by it, then obviously action would have been taken and it wasn't because they weren't. And also the risk of outdoor transmission is very, very, very low. It's indoor transmission, which is why the focus shouldn't be on people socializing outdoors, but rather the fact that lots of people have been forced to work indoors, including yeah. you'll lose your job on the front page of the Telegraph. You need to go back to your offices. And obviously middle-class professional people like myself can sit at home. I can use my computer and type, but what about cleaners? You know, what about people in, in manual jobs who can't work remotely and they've been forced to workplaces and they've been at higher risk and have, died of COVID and also um, suffered long COVID disproportionately as a result. So I think that's what we need to do. We need to put that in perspective because, you know, younger people should be able to socialize and obviously there should be restrictions as we ease our way into hopefully freedom soon. Um, but let's think about the real cause of indoor of transmission. That's indoors. It's places like workplaces and people having to travel to work and so on. Mm, yeah yeah i think should go to all of those people who've been fronting this and some of them some of them making the ultimate sacrifices as, as we've seen yeah 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 right well you've reassured me with that Owen, with that <laughs> answer <laughs> i said that um this was a bit of a role reversal um but I, I, I i'm really interested in hearing what it's like to be a journalist what what life is like, what the work is like. And I, I can see from when I was an MP that being a politician and being a journalist, there are some similarities, you know, the kind of antisocial hours, uh, the insecure work very often. Having um, to work with really lovely people. <laughs> yeah, but just... Just the kind of, and you get criticism, sometimes praise, but criticism from left, centre and right, don't you? Yeah. You know, it's kind of like, um, there are similarities, but I'd, I'd love to know, you know, what, what it's like being a journalist. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, obviously the differences are if you're an MP, you're accountable and you're, you know, you've got a democratic mandate to speak for people, to speak on their behalf, because when they decide that you're, you know, if they, you know, they, they have the right to recall essentially. And obviously with a journalist, you know, I, you know, sometimes you'll get people going, Oh, you claim to speak for X, Y, and Z. It's like, well, I don't actually, because unless you have a democratic mandate and you're accountable, then you don't speak for anyone but yourself. Um, you know, and, and the way I saw being a journalist um, always, I mean, my first book was called Charles, the demonization of the working class and then the establishment and how they get away with it. And the way I saw it was to give a platform to issues, causes, and people who were otherwise ignored, marginalized, and demonized. And um, and to see it as a means to an end, which is to support movements struggling to rid society of the injustices which you, 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 you write about. So that's how I've always seen uh, the job of writing and being a journalist. And I never wanted to be a journalist. It was never my aspiration. Um, 
you know, I think I toyed with academia, but like a lot of people at a certain age, I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. I studied history at university because it's a sort of degree often people do when they don't know what they want to do with their lives, to be honest. And I started, you know, I started a PhD, which I quit. And uh, I think what I found it as someone on the left is that, it, you know, it is often a, a very hostile environment. I mean, that's why I think there's some similarities. <laughs> um, you know, because you're working with people who, you know, it, it is, you know, the vast majority of newspapers in this country are run by a very small group of very right-wing oligarchs um, who defend a status quo, which they profit from, and in whose interest it is to deflect people's anger away from those at the top, like themselves, instead to people at the bottom of the pile, like migrants, refugees, Muslims, and any other target, um, you know, of people who don't have a platform and a voice to defend themselves often. So... Um, and you, you know, it, it's often attracts people who, not always, and I should say this, there's some fantastic journalists who do incredible work and incredible job exposing injustice, you know, really speaking truth to power and so on. But there are too many who speak truth to the, uh, sorry, who don't speak truth to power. They speak bigotry to the marginalized. They punch down. They, um, they're guilty of groupthink in the media. Um, they hate dissidents within their ranks. So the one thing they do not like to hear is critics of the media within the media. Never goes down well with them. And it's almost like, and you know, the point I've made before about the media is the national media is a very socially exclusive place. It's very hard for people from normal backgrounds to get in because of things like unpaid internships, the decline of local newspapers, which provided a way in often for aspiring working class journalists. The fact that postgraduate degrees for journalism are so prohibitively expensive, you often have to live in London to do them. That's a very expensive city. So people who can live off the bank of mum and dad can do that. But what about everybody else? And that means you end up often with journalists drawn from very similar backgrounds, from very similar places, who then reinforce each other's worldviews and prejudices. Um, and I think, you know, that combined with the ownership model makes it a very hostile place to work. Um and if you're on the left, then you are treated as this kind of um, interloper. You don't really belong here. Um, you're not really a journalist. You're an activist, you know, um, which, you know, I find interesting because so much of the British press are partisan instruments of the Conservative Party. I mean, why aren't they activists? And, you know, throughout history, and I'm not comparing myself to them in stature just to make this clear, but they've always been politically engaged journalists. George Orwell you know, he didn't just campaign for a political party uh, in Spain. He took up arms for the poom. No one says homage to Catalonia wasn't a work of journalism, or if they are, that's a brave position to make. But that was him writing as someone who was an armed member of a political party in Spain. And that book represented their perspective on the war. Paul Fott, there's a journalism award named after him. Brilliant investigative of journalism. And, you know, he stood for elected office repeatedly. He was a member of the Socialist Workers' Party. Um, so you often get, though, on the left, if you're on the right and you're politically engaged and all the rest of it, if you're, I don't know, she, I'm not saying this to attack him, but Lord Danny Finkelstein, who is the Times's, I think, probably most esteemed columnist, he's a conservative lord. But it's only people on the left who get singled out and targeted as not, as not really belonging there. You're just political activists. You're outriders um, uh, for the Labour leadership, whilst political editors who don't pretend to be opinion writers do the bidding of, uh, of, of the conservative party. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, the key thing is as well, the other thing is people don't understand that there are different types of journalists. A news reporter is one and an opinion columnist is, is another. And they, you know, 
unless you're a reporter, you're a journalist, that's not how it works. I do report, you know, I spend a lot of time, I've done front page articles about uh, alleged sexual harassment under, f- for example, Sir Philip Green um, um, at Topman. I've, I've done lots of traveling around the country doing reportage, including my videos recently in Hartlepool. Uh, so, but, it, but if you're on the left, you're, you, you just have, um, you know, without getting a tiny violin out, you get these pressures that people do not otherwise get, you know, you, you're just constantly under siege. You constantly have people trying to get you fired all the time. Um, and then those same people publicly will talk about cancel culture whilst doing everything they can to hound anyone on the left out of the British media when there's not many, many of us. I mean, that, that's the other thing, you know, other, other journalists on the left, generally on freelance, I'm on a freelance contract. Technically I'm a, I'm, I'm, I'm a columnist at the Guardian, but I'm not on staff. I'm on a retainer. They can get rid of me like that if they want. And others don't even have that. They're freelancers on precarious mm. condi- in conditions. Mm. That does sound really, um, just coming in, that does sound quite stressful. You know, I mentioned the insecure work and, uh, you know, the lack of uh, antisocial hours and all of that. But there must be, is is there an excitement there, an adrenaline there that that keeps you going? Or or is it that desire that you mentioned to, to get that, message out and to change things and yeah that's how i see it you know i've never i don't enter myself as, a, as an example i would never i don't enter myself into awards lots of journalists spend their time entering their work into various journalistic awards but i'm not interested in the approval of my peers and obviously lots of journalists will see that's how they see it they they, they want the approval of their industry and their peers uh and i i don't uh i mean i prefer not to be attacked as much as i am by some of them including privately uh, but I should probably gloss over that. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I, I uh, yeah, I mean, I. But the the way I see it is just trying to reach people often who, you know, a lot of my readers or, you know, all my work, the videos and podcasts and my books are, are younger. You know, they're younger people who are otherwise engaged in politics. You know, that's for me. I sometimes do trips to schools and sixth forms, and you'll get working class young people on. From the local council estates, who, um, who, uh, that's my cat. <laughs> I can hear the cat. I know he's just he's in a very <laughs> demanding mood today. Um, you get very demanding, yeah. Who, uh, uh, who read my books, and you know, for me, and and he'll say to me, that's how they got interested in politics. That for me is the test, mm. you know. When, yeah, when, that's great. Whenever I get young people saying, I got interested in politics because of your videos or your books, or your articles, I'm like, mm. that's it. That's my test not that's not, brilliant not get you know and but yeah i find but it... when you when you say just coming in there when you say reaching out to people what do you think about especially left-wing politicians who write for papers and they're behind a paywall what what do you think about that i don't know what the point is i would never write um i would never if the guardian had a paywall i'd leave like i mean you, what's the point and re, you know what's the point of writing to you know, unless it was one of those, but to be fair, you've got somewhere, so it's not, a, you know, you get a certain number of articles free, fine. But but otherwise, it's so inaccessible. I mean, I subscribe to the Times online because I have to. It's my job. I have to read different newspapers. I subscribe to the Financial Times. I subscribe to the Times online. Um, I subscribe to the Telegraph online. Again, I have to do my job. I have to read uh, different perspectives. But obviously, the vast majority of people don't do that. And, you know, as soon as you've got a paywall there, um, there's a barrier um, which, you know, only overwhelmingly priv- people in privileged backgrounds will, 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 
will read that. I do think it's fine. I mean, I totally get it's important to reach different audiences if you're a politician. I get that. You can't just write for sympathetic... For symp- I mean, if you want to write for sympathetic outlets, you're going to struggle if you're on the left. Um, because, there were, you know, I work for The Guardian, which is a liberal newspaper, not a socialist newspaper. It provides space for someone like myself or Dixie Chakraborty, for example, but it, but it's not a socialist newspaper by any stretch of the imagination. It's a liberal newspaper. It's very, very different. So there's no if you're on the if you're on the socialist left, then you you know fine you have to you have to you have to write for outlets that don't accord with your views um, necessarily. Uh, and if you're a politician, you have to reach a broad audience. But if you're writing for just paywalls, then you just kind of think, how many people are you even reaching? Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. I think Tom, do you, do you want to come in here on yeah. about the left media? I think you wanted to ask well, about I, that, did you? Yeah. Okay. Um, just. I've obviously, when I found out that you were coming on the podcast, Owen, I, I started listening to your stuff and, um, and uh, you know, reading up a bit about you. Obviously, I've seen you in The Guardian over the years. I used to be a Guardian reader and um, I've enjoyed your stuff, I'd say. Um, but I had no idea how huge you've, you, you've really have built something pretty big there haven't you your your media um you know your podcast your your youtube all of that stuff I, i'm quite impressed with it I, I was listening to something on your podcast the other day and someone was going on about oh you've only got twenty thousand or something and i thought blimey you know twenty thousand that's a lot and then you said no no i've got more than that and i was thinking how big is this? You know, it's, it's fantastic. But before I found that out, what I wanted to say to you was, do you think the left media should get more organised or do you think it's better just to have it like fairly anarchic like it is? Um, yeah, it was funny. that. Yeah, I think they were pointing out like, yeah, because I've done lots of, we, we only launched the video channel itself like four or five months ago. Um, yeah, and we've, you know, we've got videos which have reached huge numbers of people. Um, because the way, well, not just that. So the way it works with with my stuff is, we have uh, on YouTube, uh, Facebook, because I've got a Facebook page with lots of followers, so we use that for videos. Um, Instagram, we use IGTV, and that reaches often younger people, so that's why that's very important. Uh, a lot younger than me. Um, uh, Twitter videos as well, we integrate them on Twitter, um, but also the podcast and the podcast is doing the podcast at the moment i haven't checked the latest stats but it was the it was the biggest politics podcast in the country and it's 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 reaching but you know people under my i mean the majority of people are younger than me who listen to that so that's great um and i the way i see it was say navara because i'm i'm close friends with most of the people who involved the, the people you know people like ash sarkar and michael walker you know we're not just comrades we're actually close friends we spend a lot we spend a lot of time socializing and discussing and debating um but we do you, you know marvel you know marvel films you know marvel films they're like yeah yeah the marvel universe and it's almost like we're in a we're in even though we've got different things we're in the same marvel universe because i've got my obviously i've got my you know i've got my channel and my podcast and stuff and then i've got my my articles with guardian and then i've got got my books and that's the different things that I focus and they all kind of link together or, and then there's TV and that's the same, you know, with Ash, she goes on TV a lot, obviously and she's brilliant when she does on radio. 
So the way I look at it is we just, we work together. We often go in each other's shows. Uh, we promote each other's stuff. You know, we're allies. We're not rivals. We're not competitors. It's in our interest, all of us, that, you know, the politics we believe in does well. So we support each other. And, and also because, you know, I found without, you know, one of the things I think is good is, what you know, I was glad at first when Ash um, became a superstar, really, in <laughs> 2017, 2018, because I thought, I mean, partly I was like, well, that'll spread the abuse around. <laughs> um, but then I felt bad because I was Share the pain. I'm, eh? I'm not joking. I was like, yeah. But I mean, obviously, that's terrible because she gets, again, terrible, horrible, misogynistic and racist stuff for that matter. But also, um, you know, we can talk to each other about what it's like having the far right after us all the time, that kind of stuff. Uh, and the pressures we're under from various directions. Uh, so that's good for our sanity. But no, I mean, I think it's important that, you know, I think having multiple organizers, multiple, you know, double down users, another, let a thousand flowers bloom. We all do different stuff. We don't do the same stuff. We do different, there are overlaps, as you'd expect, because our politics are in the same ballpark. But yeah. I think, you know, I've been on socialist telly a, a few times. Um, and, and that's very different, isn't it? Same politics, I believe, but it, it, but it is very different. I think, you know, Tom's question about is there strength in that in numbers and working together and is the way there could be, I'm talking about left coalitions, but, uh, but bringing, bringing that left media and message together. I don't know wh what you think on that. Yeah, I mean, I mean, look, I mean, I, I, the way I look at it is there's different strands on the left and, the, you know, people with different mm. approaches. So it's fine to let people do their own different things because they're because what happens then is, you know, you get people on the left and outside the left, hopefully they just shop around. You know, yeah. we've got to avoid yeah. where we're only speaking to ourselves. Though. I think that is a problem because... Mm. Um, I mean, that there is a role for that, you know, discussions amongst the left about what we do and mm. how we mobilise. But we also need to be able to uh, reach people beyond that. And, you know, there's a lot of people who are vaguely sympathetic, you know, because most people don't think about politics very often. It's not part, you know, it's a huge part of our lives. But it isn't, for, not in a formal sense, it isn't for most people. And um, so we've, you know, and, and but there are a lot of people who do think, you know, that the rich should pay more and the world is unjust and unequal and we need to deal with the climate emergency and we should publicly own our utilities and young people shouldn't be in debt for going to university. Obviously, people think that, but it's not a big, it's not their lives to, to spend their time thinking about that and doing something about it. So the issue is how do you reach people like that or convince people? You know, again, that's the thing. When when sometimes I get, I get people in touch, you're like, I used to be a Tory and then I read your stuff. And then you're like, well, brilliant. That's that. That's it. You know that. That's as good as it gets. So I think there's a lot. I just think differently. Media outlets do different things. You know, some are there to try and organise people on the left and and to try and debate within the left strategy, tactics, and approaches. Others, you know, want to do that as well, but maybe also look at how they reach other or a wider audience with other videos. You know, I did this one. We did this documentary. I was very proud of earlier this year. COVID-19 catastrophe about how what we did is we just went through a video uh, about how the um, 
how the government caused the calamity we're currently living through. And that did really well on not just on YouTube, it went viral on Facebook. And that was reaching people who weren't like they're not a member of the Labour Party or or any other party. They're not they're not part, you know, they're they're just people who are kind of angry and fed up and then saw something and went, Yes, this is it. So I just think we've got to do different that. We've got got to, you know, we've got, we just let a thousand flowers bloom. I think the thing I, I for me, Owen, was that having w- Recently come into politics, really, in the last five or six years, uh, not uh, and, and witnessed how the, the mainstream media basically turned into a one big pack gang and to get what the establishment wanted. And that's how I saw it anyway. And I just thought we they kind of created the whole story. And there are just a few people on the side who didn't get sucked into that story, really, in the end. Uh, and I just came out of that thinking, well, how are we going to combat that? That's just going to happen over and over again. And then I, I kind of thought, well, the only way we can combat that is by having the same thing ourselves that's got that much power that can balance that out, because that is going to be their number one go-to weapon every single time that there's any kind of threat to their um, setup. Uh, and and so I started to think, well, let's try and get this organ, this media, a bit more up and running and up together, and a bit more so that it, so that people can see it. Now I totally get what you're saying about the diversity, and I also totally get that organisation is a nightmare. Um, so I'm not quite sure what I'm trying to say here, really, except that we have got to get this voice, this message going out there to counterbalance that what's coming from them. I, I totally agree, and and that's why you know I mean the issue is unfortunately you know it's a, a recurring problem is that um, it's very expensive to run media organisations, and the people who generally have the money to run media organisations are very rich people, and very rich people tend to support policies which favour them by protecting their wealth and their power. Um, that's a hard thing to deal with. And that's why, you know, one of Labour's proposals that I thought obviously was very, very good at the last election and developed before that, developed by brilliant media activists, uh, was to come up with ideas that would make it financially viable to have a, a, a more diverse media ecosystem. So there was this idea that you put a tax on internet giants and then everyone in the country gets this um, allowance, Um which they can use to uh, spend on any media organization, um, uh, which has to abide by certain standards. Um, and that would, uh, that would allow, uh, you know, independent media who aren't reliant on rich oligarchs. You know, I mean, obviously those of us, you know, we use things like Patreon and crowdfunding. That's how, you know, I, with my channel and podcast, because, uh, you know, I don't have the time and experience to do, do it otherwise, or technical know-how. Uh, it's the same with Navarra, you know, and, and, and uh, but we can't compete with them yet because it's, it's so expensive. It's really, really expensive to run any media organization. And uh, it tends to be those with wealth who do it. And that's a difficult thing to deal with. That's why we do need to get people as best we can in the mainstream media you know, that's why Ash Sarkar, when she, you know, she goes on TV and then reaches lots of people, that does have an impact. Mm. And yeah, the price of that, I'm afraid, is getting yelled at by people on television. 
and I'd been yelled at on television now for 10 years. So I'm accustomed <laughs> to being yelled at. I try and yell back. Uh, but yeah, it's, 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 it's about, a, yeah, it's a balance. Um, I think uh, the but- scary thing, Tom and I, Tom and I were talking earlier. The scary thing though is I'll give you an example of what's happening at the moment where suddenly it's almost like a, a switch has been flicked against Boris Johnson by the MSM that, Everything seems to be falling all of a sudden. Things that they've probably known for ages. But it's like a decision has been made. Uh, or as I say, this switch has been flicked to say, we're sick of him now. Let's get, let's get him out. And, it, and it's almost, it's that, that feeling that who, well, the question is, who, who is deciding who is going to be our prime minister? And it's, it's that feeling that it is, it is MSM. It is the right-wing media, and I don't know whether you agree with that, but that seems to be happening at the moment. To me, what's coming through just this last few days, it's like a decision's been made, we've had enough of him now, we want somebody else, and so they're all going for him, when they could have done over so many other things. You know, as I'm saying, we've been sidetracked by soft furnishings, you know. it's kind I know. Of... <laughs> I find it interesting, because I, I find that intriguing. Why is the Daily Mail going so aggressively for Boris Johnson? I don't have an easy answer to that myself um, because normally, I mean, look, if we're going to be really honest about it, I think they know they can because they don't fear a threat from the Labour Party. They don't think Labour Party's in the ring and they also don't think at the moment that the Labour Party represents a meaningful challenge to the existing order from which they benefit from. It's just a fact they don't. They don't think that. So it's not like they think... You know, we don't like Boris Johnson, but if he goes, that's the only thing from keeping the evil Reds at bay because they're a bit like, well, it's Labour. I mean, look at them. Uh, they're not, you know. I, I mean, you know, the issue with the with the right, the right are very, um, they've always been very brutal in a very effective way in that, I mean, take Margaret Thatcher. Margaret Thatcher, of course, won three elections and she won two landslide victories. She smashed the trade union movement. She smashed the post-war social democratic order. She, she forced the Labour Party to accept the underlying tenets of a lot of her philosophy, which is why she ended up saying Tony Blair was one of her biggest ever achievements. Um, and then in 1990, you know, the Tories didn't go, the right didn't go, well, we owe her everything, so we need to keep her in power. They went, she served her purpose, she'll lose in the next election, so let's put someone else in. And that's what they did, and it worked, actually. Um so I wonder if it's that. I wonder if they think to themselves they want, um, they regard him as a potential liability and to replace him with someone else. I have to say, I'm not convinced of that myself. I think, to, you know, Boris Johnson is not someone you underestimate. I think he's someone yeah, who is agree. a self-evident, he's a charlatan, he's a liar. Um, I think he's, you know, you know, he said the most despicable things imaginable about multiple um minorities uh and you know the tory mps who nominated and backed him thought he was just this they thought he was um unsuitable for high office they thought he was amoral they thought he's self-serving they thought he only cared about himself but they also thought he's the only possible antidote to corbyn's labor on the one hand and farageism on the other uh, because he thought he had this populist um connection and he does he does he does have that um, so I'm not convinced. I'm like, who are they going to replace him with? Rishi Sunak? Well, I mean, I wouldn't underestimate him, to be honest. I think he's a different kettle of fish, though. 
I mean, if it was Michael Gove, I'm a bit like... Oh. Hey, hey, you're talking to an ex-head teacher here. Don't mention oh, Gove. Oh, yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what the issue is. I mean, like, I, yeah, maybe they've just decided he's... You know, they want someone else more pliable in. I don't know. I mean, mm. maybe they don't like... I mean, you know, he's increasing... The fact on the economy at the moment, they're doing things like increasing corporation tax. Maybe. Maybe. Who knows? Uh, I think, well, I hope it's that I hope it's that they don't think that Labour's biddable enough. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe I don't. Yeah. I mean, maybe maybe it is. Do we have maybe to look a little bit further than uh, you know two or three people who own the national papers? I think possibly because you know this this is not necessarily just happening in the UK that have decided they want to change Boris Johnson. I mean. It's very difficult to deal with people like Boris Johnson if you're another country, for example, because he's totally unreliable, and uh, you can't he, you can't ever find out what he really thinks because he doesn't really think anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, he does think stuff, but it's not really of any relevance to dealing with other countries. Yeah. So, um, you know, possibly countries like uh, America think, well, you know, we've got to get rid of this loon. We can't make any progress at all. Or, or uh, who, I mean, I, I absolutely don't know who controls things. And I don't want to appear like, every week I appear like a bit of a conspiracy theorist. I'm, I'm not. But <laughs> he got really het up last week. I had to calm him down. <laughs> I do want to know who's pulling the strings here because it clearly isn't Johnson, uh, in my view. And I don't think it's the pa- owners of the papers. I think they're all... I think the papers are a weapon that is used by the establishment to get what they want. And I can't see who it is behind all of this. Uh, and, uh, you know, I don't want to go into lizard territory because I'm... Uh, clearly it isn't, you know, but... <laughs> yeah, I mean, it isn't the way these things work. The way... I mean, what I did in... Without I being one of those writers of guys, as I wrote in my book, but that's what I... <laughs> the point, what I said in the establishment was it's not a conspiracy. You just get... You know, basically, you get uh, economic interests, uh, wealthy economic interests, who have rational interests in the sense, rational on their own terms is what I mean, in that they have lots of wealth and power and they want to protect their wealth and power, which is a, a rational thing for wealthy vested interests to do. That's what you'd expect them to do. Um, and uh, they're bound together by a common ideology, which a lot of us call neoliberalism, which is about, um, you know, where you allow rapacious capitalism, where the state exists to support private interests. Um, and, um, and, and, and they will do rational things to protect. It's not like the shadowy individuals all sitting in a room cackling, going, ha, ha, ha. And pulling strings. I don't think it. I don't think it has to work like that either. You just get, um, you know, you, you obviously they mix in the same circles and they talk to each other. And I'm sure they have some fascinating WhatsApp groups, which would be great to be a member of. Yeah. Um, yeah and I'm sure they do. Uh, you know, I'm sure they do go like this Boris Johnson chap. I, do you know what though? I think he had his purpose. I mean, he did <laughs> smash that Corbyn fella. Thank goodness. <laughs> but I have to say, I mean, uh, honestly, it was a joke. <laughs> yeah, and, and then they just go like, let's do that. Do you know, I think we should go for him. I think we should jolly well go for that blasted man. Yeah, fine. I mean, maybe I'm sure. I mean, the problem is I'm not part of these circles, so I'd never know. But I think, um, yeah, I think maybe they just think he's out. A lot of them just decided they he's outlived their purpose. That's it. You see, I think, yeah. what, what do you think goes on 
I mean, as an investigative journalist, you know, I know that you've got several roles, but that you did say that's what, that's one of them. I think you could try and find out if that is what it's like behind the scenes. Um, but um, uh, yeah, next book, your next book. <laughs> what Owen. about when they all meet up at that place in Switzerland, though? That's that's a right bunch of knobs, and they all meet up together. What, what are they talking? Are you about? talking about Davos? Davos. That's right. Yeah, yeah, about? Davros, Davos. Yeah. Davos. Yeah. What well, I mean, what are they Davos talking about? Top. Yeah. They... <laughs> um, but, I mean, that's yeah, a... that... something's going on there, isn't it, Owen? Let's <laughs> let's face it. Yeah. I mean, obviously, Davos is again. It's where you get this international congregation of uh, very rich international players, and of course, that's not the only place. And obviously, they they do have meetings, private meetings, and all the rest of it. I mean, you know, I remember John McDonald went to Davos and took the mick out of them. Um, <laughs> yeah, I remember that too. Yeah, I mean, you know, he was your boss. I mean, he may, yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, obviously you get these congregations of the rich and the powerful and they all have interests that coincide. They might not agree with everything with each other, but they do have the basic, you know, point where they have economic interests that coincide with each other. It's in the interest of global capital to break down barriers uh, to that you know in order to be able to make money it's in their interest to suppress labor standards globally so they can exploit cheap labor um it's in their interest that com- that governments privatize services and utilities so they can make money out of those things and obviously they push that an ideology otherwise known as neoliberalism uh in order to achieve those ends and they do that they coordinate that of course they do it's all it is coordinated to a large degree it doesn't it doesn't need to be in a sense a shadowy conspiracy they use think tanks which they fund and those think tanks are staffed by people who believe what they're saying it's not like they're just for hire but the reason they're funding those think tanks is because those think tanks are promoting policies which benefit the rich and powerful they you know you get think tanks going well it's good for everyone if we privatize the National Health Service. And obviously that's a nonsense, but those people are true believers who believe it. And then these private healthcare companies give them money in order to advance that agenda. So in a sense, do you see what I mean? It's a rational thing. If you have a under capitalism, and this is what Marx analyzed, you know, Marx was not, the, the, the work of Marx and Engels is not conspiratorial. It's not about shadowy individuals. You know, Das Kapital and the rest is about systems. It's about how you get a system. So, you know, he wrote about how the bourgeoisie, the capitalist class, uh, their interests were hemmed in by feudalism. It stopped them from being able to make the profit that they made. And after a while, as the capitalist class became strong enough, they got rid of feudalism in order to create a new society where they can make huge amounts of money by exploiting a growing industrial proletariat. It's not a conspiracy. It's a rational thing for people with, you know, rational economic interest actors will will do that. Uh, and I think that's the way of looking at it. Uh, you know, yeah. it's not a conspiracy. It's, But it doesn't mean there aren't conspiracies, by the way. No, I, 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 I like the way you look at it, Owen, and it's, it's, I think it's helpful. But I think also I can't help being fascinated by the 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 power brokers or whatever they are. Like, for example, you know, when Brexit was kicking off the the people that were pushing that and uh, and the way they were playing it and still how much power they've still got in the in the government in the seat of power and and the fact that probably now 
Well, I don't know what their plans are. I'd be fascinated to know. I, I might be talking to the wrong person, probably. And, and, and I, I, as a caveat to all that, I do realise that this kind of conversation is completely pointless, really, in a lot of ways. No, it isn't pointless. I think it's useful because I think the one of the things I worry about with, I'm not saying you think this, but when I come across this conspiratorial ways of thinking is it demobilizes people because it makes people think that you can never possibly overcome something that entrenched and secretive mm. uh, when actually with enough collective power you can overcome the current system yeah just coming in on that owen you know post pandemic is this a watershed moment now where you know all the inequality if i look at education and what it's exposed there with kids with no digital access no access to green spaces all of that um the disproportionate number of uh, deaths of uh, people of colour in the health service. You know, all, all of those things have been exposed. They were there. It was going on before. Is this the moment, talking about collective action, that now there, need, there needs to be that uh, coming together, I think, of, of people who can? And I'm talking about journalists, politicians, whoever has that capacity and that voice... Would you agree now's the time, if ever, we, we challenge, well, the status quo um, yes. in terms of inequality? Uh, absolutely. And what you said there is spot on. You know, what the pandemic was, was like a flare which lit up inequalities which were always there, but really in primary colours lit them up and exacerbated them, of course. You know, the fact that, you know, we, we applauded from our windows and our uh, porches and balconies or whatever, mm key workers who have been undervalued and underpaid and continue to be so for, mm. for so many years, including mm. Tory ministers applauding them after attacking their terms and conditions for years. Uh, you know, mm. the we think of the fact that the poorer you are, the more likely you are to die of COVID-19. Uh, if you're per, if you're black, you're far more likely to die of COVID-19. Uh, so it shows the racial and economic inequalities that underpin society. The fact that, you know, the precarious workers who are always often just one pay slip away from from hardship the private tenants who got they didn't get a mortgage holiday being screwed over by their private landlords uh the a national health service has underfunded a private care system that's fragmented and manned by underpaid people by run by profiteers obviously got ravaged by uh by COVID-19 universal credit suddenly you got including middle class people who've seen all these headlines about how generous the welfare state was and then got their universal credit and went oh no it's not yeah all of these <laughs> yeah. things it, it, you know it exposes mm. um exposes the, the gruesome realities of 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 Britain as it is constituted which no rational person if they were going to draw up a society from scratch would make it like this where wealth and power is concentrated in so few hands, where most people in poverty are in work earning their poverty, where there's a massive housing crisis, uh, where our public services are underfunded and under-resourced. Um, you know, this is an irrational, not just an unjust society, it is irrational. I mean, I said before, rational, it's rational in the terms of people if they're profiteering and they're making money. Obviously, it's a playground in this country for people like that. But for the vast majority of people, this is a very difficult place to live. It, their lives are insecure. We've gone through the longest squeeze in living standards before the pandemic since the Napoleonic War in the early 19th century. Um, and, and I think what, you know, Labour should be doing and are failing to do is look at what Clement Attlee did. Because what Clement Attlee's Labour did is say, when we win the war, we've got to win the peace. And only Labour are in the best place position to define what that peace looks like. 
And because what happened in World War II is the same thing. The injustices got exposed for what they were. When you got ev children evacuated from the cities and turning up with hungry bellies on people's doorsteps, people were like, oh my word, look at the poverty that exists in this country. And that fueled the the appetite and the demand for a welfare state that would finally abolish the huge poverty that people saw were reality and never return to the hungry 30s when obviously the impoverished went on hunger marches in protest at the, the, the mass unemployment and a lack of support that existed for people in those circumstances. So what we've got to do, because Labour are failing to do it, is we've got to fill that vacuum by collectively organising to place demands, demands that... Uh, that meet the massive challenges that face our society. It's not just the ones I've listed. What about the climate emergency? And, you know, coronavirus was a, you know, it continues to be the worst crisis since World War II, but climate emergency is an existential crisis threatening the very future of humanity. And if the state can mobilise to intervene in the way it was forced to over COVID-19, why not over the climate emergency, you know? So I think... The, the, that's what we that's what we on the left should be talking about that the that COVID-19 exposed the gruesome injustices and inequalities of modern society and that we must never return to what existed before which was and 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 that is why we have to organize and fight uh to build a different sort of society mm. hey, hey, yeah well said mm. Mm. yeah we'll get there <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what, what's in the pipeline then, Owen? I, I know we're running out of time now, but I'd love to know what, what we got planned. So I am actually speaking of which I am writing a book, which I was commissioned to write six years ago, uh, <laughs> which is called um, The Alternative and, uh, and How We Build It. And what that's based on is traveling around the world and talking to people around the world, economists, academics, activists, campaigners, to just look at what are the ideas and policies which we need in order to transform society, whether it be a four-day week, whether it be economic democracy, whether it be ending the failure of the war on drugs, whether it be a justice system that actually, uh, you know, like in Norway, where, uh, you know, they they have a far less punitive justice system, but a reoffending rate far lower than our own. So I'm interested in looking at what works in different countries and how we can build it together and also draw on the work of brilliant academics, campaigners, and so on to come up with, a, you know, to look at, you know the alternatives that actually do already exist and how we knit them together so that's what i'm working on um, and as well as all that i'm doing yeah we've got some great videos coming up including a video as if you i went to hartlepool and did this video about what's going on on the ground um we can't talk about it though um but i'm also doing we're doing lots of other videos about um we, we're gonna now especially because lockdowns um obviously relaxing to do these mini documentaries and I want to do that to expose injustice, give a plat pass, give a platform to people you don't normally hear from, things like that. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Great. I look forward to look forward to reading that, Owen. Yeah. Well um, thank you. Thank you so much for joining yeah, us. It is Owen, an honor. Owen, one final question that uh, yes. if you don't mind, we just um use a bit of music uh, in the making of these podcasts and we like to try and um you know, reflect the taste of the guest. So I don't know what kind of music you like. Whingy indie music. Whingy, is, is <laughs> that a category in or... Um... Uh, <laughs> should be. Uh, Mournful. I, I listen to like just, yeah, indie music. I could give you a couple. Could, could you give us a couple of tracks just so that I can tell Adam. Let me uh, see what I've just been listening to and then maybe that'll help. Uh, that, make, make them reasonably well known. 
Oh, mean, right, yeah. you've got to make them melt all No, that. no, no, you haven't, yeah. you haven't, don't, you haven't. Don't, don't do what Clive Lewis did to me. I didn't even understand what the music was he was talking about. Well, the only one I was going to suggest just because... Um, it Because we've got a shared stockbook connection here, haven't we? We have, we have, yeah. So yeah. the only thing I was going to suggest is... Um, and they are, they are... Blossoms is a stockport... Oh, pub on the corner! <laughs> It, yeah. that's, it's named after it. Yeah, oh, really? The band is okay. named after the pub, The Blossoms, which I, I grew used to, here. As a, as a young teacher, I used to go in there. There you go. <laughs> I, I lived, I think I lived about five minutes away from that pub. Anyway, um, this band from Stockport named themselves after The Blossoms, The Pub. They're called Blossoms. Brilliant. And uh, their most well-known track is Charlemagne. Excellent. Oh, we'll we'll that. work well, on that. Thank you so much, Owen. That's brilliant. <laughs> You've been a brilliant guest, mate. I really love to yeah. have you. Yeah, that is a big honour. And as I've said, I hope your downward curve uh, goes up soon from guests. You've climbed, uh, well, yeah. climbed oh, the heights of John and no. Ash. Yeah, it's it's been it's all, it's yeah, I was going to say, you had your duds. We all had the occasional duds. And now. Uh, <laughs> I think you've been overly modest there, Owen. <laughs> so, yeah, thank you so much, uh, No, it was a big honour. Thank and, you so much. Um, and, um, really, really like you to come back sometime. I know you're a busy man. Well, I'd love it. Uh, would love it. And excellent. Good luck with the podcast. And yeah, I'm thank glad you. it's Thank you. And, uh, yeah. I will yeah. see you both in real life. Yeah. Well. Yeah. And, yeah. And, see you uh, soon, Owen. Yeah, please uh, take care. Thank, thank you to the listeners. Uh, it's been great to have you with us. And uh, please remember to tell your mates uh, about our podcast if you think they'd enjoy it and uh, subscribe and all that stuff. And uh, thank you to my co-host, Thelma Walker, who I've thoroughly enjoyed her company as usual. So I'll pass you over to Thelma to say goodbye. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Owen. If journalism is good, it is controversial by its nature. Those are the words of Julian Assange. Solidarity. Solidarity.